0: All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Today, we've got a really exciting episode with Adrian from Steakhouse Finance and very advanced Spencer, obviously one of the uh, co-founders at, at Framework and a member of the Roundup portion of this, this podcast. Uh, today, we're going to be, we're, we're very cognizant, Miles and I have been giving you very technical sort of deep dives on the staking router and restaking and the intersection with liquid staking. Today, we want to zoom out a little bit and actually try to get a sense of Give you guys some sort of mental models and frameworks with how to assess some of these protocols and you know i'll caveat that by saying none of these are perfect but it's sort of a, a simpler way of describing what we're really doing here when we're talking about liquid staking we also want to get into some of the possible business models that lido or other liquid staking uh protocols could provide somewhere down the line and then value accrual and how these things are going to work and you know dare i say it even put on your your sort of investors cap when you're <laughs> listening to, to us talk here. So. This should be a fun one miles i'm excited to get into it
1: yeah i am too um you know it will be great to chat with vance again and really looking forward to chatting with adrian as well um i've been a big fan of steakhouse financial for a long time uh, and the work that they do with lido and maker so um we have great guests and pumped to get into it
0: yeah we actually got a, a fun little sort of compare and contrast of the Lido versus the maker end game. So stay tuned for that. Hey everyone, we've got a great episode here, but before we do, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Permissionless. This is the biggest and best conference in all of DeFi. It's the one that we do with Bankless, who's a great partner for us. Last year, we had almost 7,000 people there in West Palm Beach. We are moving this year to Austin, Texas from September 11th through the 13th. And if you are a listener of Bell Curve, any of these f- last five seasons, this conference is basically custom made for you. We're gonna be talking about liquid staking, the theme of this season. We've got a bunch of great panels on MEV. If you listen to the app chain thesis, we've got a bunch of Cosmos folks out there in full force. We're talking about the converging architecture of Solana, the roll-up space in ETH and Cosmos. So I would love to see all of you there. And to reward you for being such great listeners to Bell Curve, you get a special 30% off code. It's bellcurve30, that'll get you 30% off tickets. Click the link in the show notes and then head over to the permissionless site and make sure that you get your ticket today. Again, that is bell curve 30. Click the link in the show notes. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of bell curve. Uh, Today I'm joined as always by my co-host miles and got Vance, uh, who many of you will know from framework, but also from the roundup uh, portion of bell curve. So welcome Vance and ADCV uh, from Steakhouse Finance. Uh, Welcome you guys.
2: Hello. All
0: right. All right. Guys, we've been, uh, these last couple episodes, uh, we've been getting really into the the nitty gritty. Uh, this one's a little bit more aimed at folks in the middle of the belt curve, like <laughs> Miles and I. Um, and what we, what we want to do is give you guys some sort of high-level frameworks for, uh, zoom out of the weeds a little bit and sort of give you guys some high-level frameworks for how to like think about these different liquid staking protocols. And you know, the caveat being, these aren't going to be exactly right, but they'll be sort of helpful mental models that you can use to assess the different liquid staking protocols that are out there. And then we'll sort of have a little bit of fun uh, going back and forth on sort of speculating on the potential business models um, and risks and potential opportunities that these protocols could take, um, as well as talking a little bit about value cruel, the actual governance token for some of these liquid staking protocols. But um, if I had to, you know, just ask like a really high level question to start this out, it feels almost very basic to be asking, you know, four episodes into this season. But maybe uh, ADCV, I could throw it over to you and just ask you, like. If you had to describe uh, what a liquid staking protocol is to a layperson, right, who only had a very basic knowledge of of crypto, you know, how would you do that? And then what sort of more analog or traditional businesses would you use to sort of help them understand what we're looking at here?
2: Um, so I think you have to start by thinking about Ethereum. And I think a, a reasonable way to help people understand, so to help people who are not so familiar with crypto even understand what liquid staking is. I think you could start with describing the concept of Ethereum, a decentralized database that allows people to run a sort of virtual world computer. And the way that the security is maintained and that the incentives are aligned on this, let's say, world computer, is through this concept of staking a certain amount of capital in order to validate the transactions. And what liquid staking fundamentally does is allow staking to be accessible to as many people as possible. And I think this is the key value proposition. Staking in itself is a reasonably technical endeavor. It's not impossible. And there's a lot of progress uh, that's been done to make it more and more easy. And I think the more democratic it is for people to participate with their own computers, the better. But liquid staking is a way to sort of abstract all of that complexity away for every person to just join in and participate in securing the network.
0: Yeah, I I think that's a really helpful explanation. And uh, guys, you'll remember, actually, if there's a callback to uh, uh, some some material that ADCV actually created, um, we referenced in the staking router episode that we did with with Izzy and Ashin. Um, but you actually have a really helpful metaphor that I like uh, of thinking of these liquid staking protocols as, as banks. And again, I'm not saying that this is a perfect one-to-one analogy. That's certainly not exactly right. But I think this, this idea of managing assets and liabilities is a particularly helpful one. So maybe you could get into that sort of description a bit and maybe show where you know that happens within the context of liquid staking protocols. The description
2: of a bank is, is I think, an interesting model to help people get comfortable with the way that this liquid staking protocol works as a representation of their, their stake. So when someone purchases STETH or any other liquid staking token, they're not actually doing the staking themselves. They are, in a sense, transferring that stake out somewhere else, and that stake is being staked by another party. And I think a a bank structure, the word, you know, let's call it B asterisk NK, is a useful way of thinking about this because they are, in their most abstract and narrow sense, just a way to manage assets against liabilities. And you see many protocols in crypto function according to this schema. Uh, so it's not unique to to stake teeth. You you know, for instance, MakerDAO decentralized stablecoins. Anything that has a sort of "quote unquote" liability token must match those tokens on the other side uh, with doing something on the let's say asset side. And uh, and so I think this is where the 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 concept is helpful for understanding how a protocol can balance the incentives between both sides of this sort of schematic balance sheet. But it, it is also very important to note that for, in the case of both MakerDAO and S-Teeth, unlike in the case of JP Morgan, these are not actually custodial. So they don't fulfill many of the conditions that would actually make them banks. They are just, you know, smart contracts that coordinate incentives between players in a, in a decentralized and permissionless way. And I think that's actually the most interesting part of this innovation. So it's important to stress that, you know, there are some analogies which are interesting and relevant and helpful for, you know, building conceptual models about how these incentives can balance, but you can only, it only takes you so far. And I think the more relevant uh, insight here is to recognize that liquid staking tokens are, you know, Ethereum itself is unlike anything that's ever been done before. It doesn't really match closely to analogs from the past or from TradFi and, you know, neither does staking and also therefore neither does liquid staking, at least when done in in a sort of decentralized and, and permissionless and trustless way. It's something that's that in certain ways resembles some things, but in most of the other ways that matter does not. And I think that in the areas where it doesn't is where it gets the most interesting because you can take some of these, you know, mental models about asset liability matching. So, you know, what does the validator set look like? And how does that change the risk of the liability token? And how do you tweak the incentives to make sure that the risk is always contained and mitigated for the liability token holders, but then you can, let's say, instrumentalize instrumentalize that and automate it and make it into something much more powerful than just, just, quote, unquote, a custodial system. Uh, So yeah, sorry, I'm ranting on now, but I think the, yeah, there are some insights which are relevant, but I think the more interesting explorations and insights come from looking at the places where it does not look
1: like, yeah, no, I, I couldn't stuff. agree more. And I, I think the bank mental model is really interesting, uh, especially with the staking router. And and honestly, before the staking router existed, I, I always had used kind of more of a, a marketplace uh, mental model mm-hmm. for liquid staking protocols. Um, you know, the product being access to staking yields while retaining your liquidity, and the supply side being validators that are already running nodes uh and the demand side being you know people that want this product without having to run nodes um but before the staking router it was only one you know curated set and it was almost somewhat commoditized on on the supply side and now when you move to the staking router and having multiple modules uh there actually is much more risk management to be done with the that collateral Um, and so yeah is that a fair analogy to say that it? the the bank I guess mental model now comes in a little bit more strongly because there there is a lot more risk to manage with you know bringing on say dvt sets and solo staking sets
2: yeah definitely and I think you can so I think the the asset liability model is helpful and the interesting part of the sticking router is that this is an area where the sort of banking models of asset liability management start to fall apart so in traditional asset liability management you use credit models for established asset classes to derive how much capital you need to hold in reserve at any given time but in the case of liquid staking on ethereum it's you know we're entering completely uncharted territory here and the problem that lighter has to solve is how to design these incentives in a permissionless and trustless way such that the protocol can continue running in a know in a decentralized and permissionless way in the future for many many years with as with as little government uh governance interaction as possible and i think that that's that part is far more creative so when you so if you came up with some sort of repo or money market structure in tradfi you could use like established you could open the textbook quite literally and just like pick from there at the patterns that match and what's so interesting about this space is that you know it kind of looks like this when from a distance, and that's a helpful way to think about it when it comes to sequencing the risk, but you'll find that all none of the textbooks will actually be helpful there's There's no chapter in you know Professor Murat Chowdhury's principles yeah. of banking about you know staking on ethereum, and I think that's the that's the really interesting design space here that opens up,
0: yeah. I would agree with that. And actually, so for those of you who aren't following along on a video, we're we're looking at a diagram that ADCV put together that's actually an extension of the original one of the OG sort of crypto banking pieces written by uh, Sebastian Derivo, um, who's also at Steakhouse. And there's sort of a this illustrated there's sort of a spectrum of capital capital structures ranging from the Federal Reserve on all the left, all the way to Steve on the right. And it's actually kind of helpful because you can see the similarities in terms of matching assets and liabilities. But obviously if you just zoom out and look at the two extremities, the Federal Reserve looks absolutely nothing like Steve. So it probably doesn't make sense to you know apply the exact same set of rules to them. But one of the things that I actually like, especially about this document or about this diagram is you've kind of got the Federal Reserve. Then what J P Morgan might look like, what MakerDAO might look like, and then what Steeth might look like, and even though obviously those things are all very different from one another, there are you know you can um, you can sort of see helpful similarities. Like one thing that I often think about is under discussed in crypto generally is distribution. So if you look at that, something like the it's like J P Morgan, what would J P Morgan consider distribution? Um, you know, brokerages are actually like the, the sort of arm of distribution within the, the realm of financial services, right? So they kind of do this asset liability management and risk management. But then there's this additional sort of arm of distribution where it's a brokerages are kind of like an investment shop, right? Where you go and you select different assets to buy and then they'll go execute those things. Um, and one of the things that I would kind of like to get into is like, frankly, from the standpoint of something like Lido or Steeth or any of these liquid staking protocols, what distribution might end up looking like. And I think maybe the easiest way to segue into that, uh, and Mance, maybe I could involve you here and, and get your your thoughts, is like I almost want to compare and contrast MakerDAO's end game approach uh, to what something like Lido or Rocket or, or Frax or any of these other liquid staking protocols might end up doing. And the, the MakerDAO end game has been, I think if you're not inside of it, a little bit confusing. Uh, and it's difficult to parse some of the signal from the noise in terms of the actual activities that are going on. But, you know, I I, I do think there's some some method to the madness there that we could actually sort of apply to something like uh, a liquid staking protocol as well. So uh, wh- whoever whichever one of you wants to take this, um, could you kind of just give us a high level of how you view the end game? And then maybe we can get into the similarities between what a liquid staking protocol might do and some of the choices that they'll have to face down the line. Uh, so
3: I, I think... Uh... If you listen to kind of Rune describe it, uh, like Maker is what he calls like a broad DAO. And uh, it's it's a, it's a, you know, he's basically building a large central bank on chain. It has, you know, many different types of use cases. It has many different types of collateral uh, that it could onboard. It has, you know, the sub DAO structure, which is effectively for user acquisition, collateral onboarding all of the things where governance needs to pick up to the pace where they can actually do different things strategically. And that's just like a lot different of a of a concept of a DAO than <clears throat> what Lido is today, which is, you know, he calls it a narrow DAO. And like, I don't think these are, are exactly like the right terms. You know, it, it kind of depends on what the overall size of the market is in terms of like, if a DAO is broad or narrow. But Lido is, you know, at this point, focused on liquid staking, mostly on Ethereum. Um, But if you look at the stats, there are, you know, fifteen billion in Lido TVL. So that's about three x the amount of Dai that's outstanding today. The holders of Steeth and and Dai, I, I would call it a wash. They're probably roughly equal. It, it says there's like two hundred eighty thousand holders of Steeth. There's four hundred thousand holders of Dai. Maybe if you add the, the wrapped Steeth holders and the you know people who are holding in custody that they don't quite know, maybe it's like roughly equal. I think if you compare both of them right now, Lido uh, is just growing, or Steeth, you know, it, which is you know Lido's sticky derivative, is just growing a lot faster than Dai, um, and so like those are kind of the rough dynamics of what I would say is going on at the moment. In terms of its you know its final end game plan, I, I think you know Makers is pretty. Uh, I would just call like. Just ruthlessly moving the ball forward in terms of more collateral and more debt, and getting more people to hold the stablecoin. Steeth is a little bit different. There are different things that you can do with stake ETH. Like we're seeing people use it in restaking, Espresso, Suave, you know, uh, Eigenlayer. Like there's going to be a lot of things that you can do with ETH. And so the end game of Lido depends on a) what those opportunities are, and b) how they want to participate in them. But there's certainly going to be a role. And then I I think you know those are kind of the strategic imperatives. There's things like you know, leverage staking—if you want to use the surplus or not use the surplus to your advantage—to actually you know extend people lines of credit, kind of like Spark is doing for MakerDAO. You know, there is like some version of that for Lido. You know, that you could think of, but maybe it doesn't make quite as much sense. But I think what's uh, what's really exciting about Lido specifically is that um, it has this reserve currency potential that something like a Dai, you know, in my mind, doesn't. Just because at this point, Dai is a lot of USDC, it's a lot of real world assets, it's a lot of kind of things that are not endogenous to blockchains, and I don't think that's ultimately where you know Lido's market is is going to be. And I think the Lido market is just bigger as as a result. So those are kind of like how I think of both of them at the moment. But I would probably ask Adrian like, is that directionally correct? You, you know a lot more about this than me.
2: There's a. I, so, I steakhouse actually originated as the strategic finance core unit at MakerDAO. So, we've been through the depths of all of the, you know, anon shit posting on the forums. <laughs> yeah, we've been uh, <laughs> burned by this in the past. We've helped with, you know, financial reporting. With now, we're helping as an ecosystem actor uh, in terms of uh, real world asset underwriting and and ALM and balance sheet management and so forth. I think it's so from what I retain, I think they serve two completely different use cases. I think uh, coming back to this, however, there are a lot of very interesting similarities. Coming back to this analogy of asset liability management, it's definitely far more relevant for MakerDAO in a traditional sense than it is for Lido, let's say. I mean, to begin with MakerDAO is a decentralized, let's say, euro dollar transparent cash on the blockchain. and. Uh, to your point on the usdc and the and the real world assets I think what's emerging out of this phase of uh, MakerDAO is well firstly it's there's not as many usdc as there used to be and this is intentional and the idea is to make this sort of transparent make this make die the sort of transparent cash where you can look at the collateral and verify that it's in as broad and and diversified set of jurisdictions and asset classes uh, always constrained by obviously the constraints of, you know, uh, a liquidity surplus and, and, and the viability of the staple point as, as such. I think there are interesting parallels in the sub down model for sure. I mean, the end game is a reaction to, let's say the overcomplication of, as you point out, Lido is very, Lido is indeed very simple. It aims to do one thing, which is to make staking as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. Maker has a far more complicated set of collateral types to juggle with. And bringing all of this in at the core has proven to be a very difficult governance exercise because for now, a lot of these collateral types still require a lot of very manual governance decisions by token holders. And and coordinating all of this activity in an efficient and and productive way for all of the stakeholders in the system, so for DAI holders as well as for Maker holders, it proved to be a, a very difficult challenge. And so my read of the end game and you know you mentioned the bell curve the middle of the curve i'm definitely on the on the single digit iq side of the curve so for someone as simple We're all as me, on the left side of
0: the curve <laughs> the right side doesn't di- exist
2: <laughs> <laughs> you had like izzy and and the eigenlayer people and hustle and stuff that's now we can balance it out a bit uh, so yeah i have a lot of difficulty parsing a lot of the end game but i recognize that it's a reaction to the implicit chaos that emerges when the rules are not made very clear for a governance system that doesn't have a clear hierarchy like a DAO. so you know it's uh, it's an it's it's making all the rules of governance extremely explicit on the one hand which is a huge benefit actually because it removes a lot of the cognitive overhead of having to debate or interpret what a rule is supposed to say and on the other hand it moves out the collateral types over time into these subdao structures which i suppose more resembles what the staking router may look like you can think of the staking router and the subdao structure as a sort of generalized asset liability management contract or allocator and you know spark is like one parts one set of like die validators if you want um it's obviously far more complex than this and then the real world assets are another
3: one thing I would say is, like, just watching the forums of both Lido and Maker, the hardest part and what the DAOs get tripped up on mm-hmm. is uh, on the DAI side, collateral onboarding, and, like, just agonizing over, like, you know, what's good collateral, why, what's the risk limits, you know, why, all of those questions. And it's just really tough when it's Maker Core having to make all those decisions. Like, Maker Core was really never made for that, in my in my view. Lido is kind of the same. Like, all of the things that... Uh, it felt like you know what used to take up half of people's time or more was like you know should we should we do matic staking okay should we develop it in house or should we license it out okay should we do solana staking okay should we like it's like the same questions. I think like this generalized framework of sub DAOs, of staking routers of like those types of technical solutions that offboard it from the main dao construct are really helpful because it, in my opinion, just like DAOs can work um but like the the core there's gonna be a core unit of each of these ecosystems like whatever you want to call it like the maker core the lido core you know snx uh you know with all of the front ends around it like those are capital allocation dows those are not like you know blocking and tackling day-to-day decisions and seeing it progress to that new kind of state i think is really positive it just enables them to move a lot quicker i know a lot of people disagree with the maker end game i think it's more thoughtful than people it credit for i I think the meta point is like the staking routers and the allocator DAOs. like those are how you actually scale
1: i mean it occurs to me that whether we're talking about eigenlayer um lido or maker the end goal is kind of the same is to remove any sort of risk uh through governance attacks and also to remove the amount of you know human subjectivity or you know i guess central points of risk um and it's really interesting to see the different approaches that they're taking. And Eigenlayer's goal, right, to, to do this, their end game is to actually get, you know, enshrined into the Ethereum protocol. Lido seems to be, have an end game of, you know, wanting to remove uh, as much human decision-making as possible, automate these processes as much as possible, and ossify parts of the protocol to, you know, take away governance's control. And then Maker is kind of you know, on the opposite end of the spectrum, and that they've accepted. There's always going to be a you know a need for a lot of human involvement, but this you know sub dao model and and division of responsibilities and you know decision making authority is is really to try to remove any central points of risk. Um, but you know, given the nature of the diff the differences across these protocols, the way to get there is very uh, very different.
2: I think Hasu mentioned it somewhere that the better form of governance in decentralized organizations like this is governance over processes rather than governance over decisions. And I think that's what Lido and Maker have in common. That's one of the central features of the end game is to remove all of the decisions and make them explicit and then focus on the process of, you know, how do you make changes if you need to make changes? How do you regulate the risk? How do you supervise that all of the governance actors are doing what they're supposed to do? Um I think this this framing is much more helpful because then you can really focus on is this the right process for the aim right like lido's aim of making staking as accessible as possible to everyone This is a, a an aim that requires processes to get to and if you snarl governance in individual decisions uh, you will never get there.
0: I, I wonder if you could also look at Lido and Maker is two interesting examples of one being a broad DAO or a wide DAO uh, in the form of Maker and then a narrow narrow DAO in the form of Lido is actually sort of going towards the same place from different starting points. And the way that I have started to view the end game is actually a way to sort of cordon off and silo some of the risk into some of these sub DAOs. Um, And Lido is actually in this funny state of going from what was to Miles's point earlier, a very simple marketplace model into something that is a little bit more complex with the the staking router, albeit it's the way that Lido needs to move, but they're actually yeah. sort of going towards the same place. And then maybe there's this, there's this idea of how do you cordon off the most core functional parts of that DAO and Maker is going from like, you know, it used to do a whole bunch of this stuff itself to now maybe it's pushing some of the leverage and growth opportunities into some of these sub DAOs and like sort of protecting the golden goose. And maybe there's um, that's kind of the similarity in between those two things. But one, one other idea that I want to start getting into sort of potential business models or growth opportunity for, let's just say Lido, but again, this is any liquid staking protocol that has uh, some sort of concept of a staking router. Um, a big question. Adrian, I'd love to get your perspective on that we didn't get to somehow in that two-hour episode that we did with Izzy, is a lot of the business opportunities that are going to arise for Lido is whether or not the protocol and governance will allow for a specific set of delegators to pick their specific subset of validators. Um, So right now, the allocator mechanism in the staking router, it has this very simple governance approves a new module. uh, It approves a target limit. Let's say it's 1%. Once those once that 1% essentially gets filled, the overflow goes towards the whitelisted uh, validators that originally were with Lido until you move that up to like two percent or something like that. But right now, there would be no way for let's say there's an institutional staker. They need to get connected with an institutional um, with like an institutional set of validators that have all KYC'd. What Lido won't do right now is direct you there. And what that's done yeah. is open up other niches in the market for the liquid, liquid collective, the alluvials of the world. And what they're doing is saying, hey, you know, the validators within our marketplace coordination mechanism, it's the chorus ones or the block daemons or the figments of the world, right? So you don't really need to worry about all this. An opportunity for Lido, and this is where you could start to see more of this like liquid staking as a service type model emerge, is you don't need to actually worry about that. We, we will connect you as a delegator, as a staker with the correct, um, the correct you know set of validators it's almost a concierge uh sort of service if you will like what do you think about this as a potential growth opportunity for for lido
2: it's interesting um so firstly i mean there's obviously a lot of opportunities that appear on the surface today when you open the, the possibility i i don't even know if it's even technically possible but uh one so one early risk that occurs to me and focusing just on LIDO as a protocol in its aim to make staking as easy as possible to as many people as possible in a sort of API for staking in a neutral middleware type of structure, uh, allowing people to customize the exposure to the delegation, to the delegators that they want risks uh, creating centralizing forces inside the staking router itself. The other, and so just from that perspective, I would be hesitant to sort of think that this might be a panacea or a solution for onboarding institutions. Instead, what I'd, I'd actually like to do here is take a step back and, and explore some of these assumptions that led you through the, uh, the thinking of this phrase of like, this, this stake teeth is like KYC, or it's with validators that are KYC, unlike this other stake ETH. So it's okay for institutions. And I think that there's two axioms here that we need to try and, and push back on in, in order to help move our industry forward. Uh, the first one is that KYC applies at certain layers where it maybe shouldn't or doesn't have to or where it's more relevantly it's like it's like a non-question like you don't kyc smtp servers when you send emails so in a similar angle it's very difficult to justify if you think from first principles why you would kyc a trustless permissionless protocol such as lido because then you may as well kyc ethereum i see the responsibility of kyc is Let's say, in order to comply with, you know, FATF rules to prevent crime and money laundering and enable supervision of centralized custodians and, and financial services, but the responsibility is in these institutions. There's no reason why an institution couldn't KYC its customers and use Ethereum, for example. Uh, all sorts of absurdities start to emerge when you start to peel apart this this sentence. So all of this, all of the stake teeth is on the same deposit contract, but this isn't a relevant comparison because this is one of those instances where, you know, staking on Ethereum doesn't match money one-to-one. It's just not the same. So applying things that apply to money is you're going to have a very difficult time, or you're going to contort the marketplace into a shape that makes it less useful or less credible. Uh, Ethereum ecosystem that's super centralized is less valuable for everyone. So even if centralized players controlled, 80% 80% of Ethereum staking, Ethereum would just be less useful and less valuable as a result. Uh, but that market incentive is there to centralize. And that's one of the things that Lido is so conscious on fighting. And the other uh, the other axiom that I wanted to challenge was this distinction of different types of staked ETH. So yeah, like I said earlier, all, all, ETH, all staked ETH is the same, fundamentally. They're all in the same deposit contract, they're all on a validator, they're all on a machine. They're all performing security functions for the Ethereum blockchain. And so introducing this idea to regulators of some ETH is better than other, I think is a dangerous path to walk down on. And I think the more interesting approach, the more creative approach might be, for instance, to engage regulators, to encourage them to run validators themselves. And to see that, okay, look, not only is this not like the past, but this is so new and so unlike anything else, that you need to have a stake in it yourself in order to safeguard the neutrality of the system and to allow your citizens to participate in in it equally. And so, yeah, coming back, sorry, coming back to the original question of like, should Lido be able to allow its users to pick uh, delegators? I think just reasoning from this sort of first principle of like, what is the point of Lido in the first place? I'm inclined to think that it's not such a good idea, though there may well be technical implementations that are possible. The other aspect is breaking fungibility, of course. Like, if you, you know, at the base, at the most basic level, like if you you can make an institutional stick teeth and an institutional lighter stick teeth and the regular stick teeth, but this is the same. Like, it alludes to a lot of the same problems that I was ranting about just now.
3: Explain a little bit like, what is the staking router used for if not, um, you know, like this type of? market making with you know one validator to one customer on the staking side
2: so the staking router is a way to diversify the node operator set the validator set that underpins lido and you know we talk about business models and i i do think that's the right framing but it's also important to note that for lido and for many other decentralized protocols it's not necessarily a pure profit objective so the standard alm formula in a bank, for instance, is about maximizing profit or return to equity, subject to constraints of you know liquidity and solvency. But the same type of objective equation set for Lido is st- still being you know developed and thought out and discussed in the DAO, uh, because there's it's not clear that there's one single objective of like profit to LDO holders or rebases to stake ETH holders. It's more about decentralizing the node operator set, enforcing geographic distribution uh, you know, maintaining the integrity of the underlying base layer of Ethereum. And so I see the staking router as an ALM controller that has to solve a very complicated multivariate equation that we haven't fully defined yet entirely, that aims to guarantee, let's say the security of Ethereum and allow as many people as possible to, to participate. Like in the future, I think it would be really great if let's say, whatever, Figment, Coinbase, UBS. You know, Goldman Sachs joined Lido just as much as the individual stakers and the individual validators and the professional validators. And then the role of the staking router would be to control the effects of centralization that come with scale to prevent the larger players or the professional node operators from dominating too much of that stake, or at the very least in making sure that the, the allocation is done in a, in a fair and distributed way that... That doesn't compromise the security yeah. of the I, and system. i
1: think it's a really interesting topic and Vance, you mentioned earlier collateral onboarding being kind of the most central sensitive touch point of maker governance and i envision i guess allocation of deposits across these modules to be one of the most sensitive areas of lido governance going forward um and you know it's, yeah. it's almost counterintuitive because the objectives of lido you know are to remove the human subjectivity and decision making longer term then you have kind of two options, which is, you know, if it's technically feasible, allow the Steath holders to choose their delegations. This is basically a delegated proof of stake model. Um, And as we see with delegated proof of stake, that can often end up very top heavy, which is, you know, uh, the trade off that you have to accept. Um, Or you could let this kind of be a free market, right. And the, that could also, you know, that would increase the rake on the supply side for Lido, which, you know, maximizes profits and is great. But obviously, the largest validator sets would be willing to bid down what their, you know, lowest possible commission rate would be in order to get more deposits. Um, and so the human touch point in this, you know, particular case is actually very aligned with Ethereum, because what you're trying to do here Is think a little bit more longer term about what the biggest version of lido could be and that's a lido that is healthy for the network right and so maybe this is the one area where keeping that subjectivity um and particularly those controlled by you know this area is controlled by people who are very aligned with ethereum is actually very important and and much healthier longer term uh potentially is that is that a fair kind of you know synopsis of the trade-off space
3: I think so. Um, I, I would say so. Like what you're talking about specifically is um, Lido, you know, there's call it five percent yield per year on Ethereum. Lido takes a ten percent cut of that. Half of that goes to the DAO to pay the workforce. Half of that goes to the validators to to effectively, you know, bootstrap and maintain their ongoing maintenance cost. I'm I'm hopeful at, at some point that you know that's a formula where you can goal seek for validator profitability. Um, that you can actually like fully automate that. Like, like Maker and the DSR, I, I think uh, central banks and banking is just like more subjective in, in many ways than like, you know, what is the goal sought, valid, validator profitability threshold that you're trying to, you know, make for. It, sometimes it feels like with Maker, it's like, yeah, like a, a little bit up or like, you know, way up, like DSR is going 8%, and then, then we're going to go way down. Like it's more of a stable governance system that should be more able to be automated. So I, I think that's one part of like the the long term of the governance for 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 Lido. I just wanted to address one thing with like the the KYC and institutional staking narrative. This is something that we've dug into a lot, and I think you know just to put a finer point on it, what people are looking for on the institutional side, or at least are told, you know, what they're looking for is um, number one, you need to KYC the actual liquid staking tokens, and and, and if you really think about it, like does that really make a ton of sense when those liquid seeking tokens are then going to change hands on chain and you're not going to have KYC on the way out? Like that, that doesn't really make a ton of sense. So that'd be the first thing I would say. Second thing I would say is like, you know, the other thing people are looking for is, um, are we ever going to be caught validating like an OFAC block? Like, I think that's everyone's like, you know, nightmare worst scenario. And I, and I think you can run stuff that, that filters that out. I think that's ultimately bad for Ethereum and I think ultimately you should strive to have more of a decentralized layer of validation and I think Lido provides that service. The last thing I'll say is like, when and I posted about this on Twitter last night, when you get to like the smaller scale LSTs, which a lot of the institutional ones are, like you do run into this uh, problem where you don't really have enough money to pay the validators to keep their rigs updated and safe and, and you know, profitable. I think the profit margin on current Lido validators is something like 40%. Like, it's one of the best opportunities in crypto. But if you're running, like, you know, one of the four validators in one of these smaller LSTs, like, you really kind of get to the point where it's like, is this even worth it? And so over, over, the, over the longer time horizon, I think, you know, if you're a team that's running an LST with, I don't even, uh, like, call it, you know, say you have a million ETH and say the price of ETH is 2000 you have $2 billion in, in TVL. You're making, you know, 5% yield on that for everyone that's holding that LST. So that you're making $100 million. And then you're taking a 10% cut. So you have $10 million. And then maybe half that goes to the workforce. I mean, $5 million a year. That's a small workforce. So there's that. Then you have $5 million to give to the validators. That's not a lot of money, you know, if you're, if you're supporting a million ETH. Um, and so like my expectation is, you know, in the state where this really plays out is things like DBT are just going to be a force for these people to kind of like, sure, you can still have the, you know, the rocket pool brand or like, you know, the swell brand or whatever, but, like you're going to be using some middleware that lowers your validator costs so that these things are actually profitable at subscale. So like, that's kind of how I see it. And that was a little bit of a, a tangent, but, you know, like. I do think there are significant scale advantages where like many businesses don't get easier the larger they are. Liquid staking is definitely one of them.
0: Miles and I, in the beginning of the season, there's a lot of interesting experimentation going on in liquid staking land that's broadly referred to as LSTFI. And really, if you look under the hood at most of these LSTFI protocols, it's just regular DeFi protocols that start with liquid staking tokens as collateral first. And that's actually, I think, what that is is a well and good way to bootstrap. But probably in the long term, it's very hard to like see the moat in between something like Maker versus a Maker clone that just their whole value proposition is that they started with, uh, Steve. Uh, and one of one of the interesting categories that we sort of explicitly decided not to dig into as much in this season was indices of liquid staking tokens because. The, how that gets built is you're diversifying, right? There are a bunch of different liquid staking tokens, and really you should have like some mix of like Steeth or reth or whatever, like whatever else to the nth degree. But exactly to your point, Vance, these sort of scrappier liquid staking startups is unclear actually the security assumptions that underlie these things. So are you actually getting more security by getting some sort of index? Or are you actually just taking I don't on, think so. I don't, yeah, think so. I think
3: it's actually the opposite. Yeah. I would argue <laughs> that too. I think it's much less like stable. what you're looking is for more diverse validators. Like it's right. like, uh, right. you know, you're buying mortgage backed securities and yeah. you know, you're trying to diversify by like buying smaller and more idiosyncratic ones with more credit risk. Like that's not right. really a great idea. Um, And so, yeah, I I think it's, like, the branding gets mixed up with the core question of, like, who are the validators? And right now the validators are professional validators. But this question is going to really change when DVD comes and it's, like, you've got a guy with a solar panel in Montana, you know, solo staking next to, like, a big institutional provider. Like, and there's going to be this combinatorial effect of... There's going to be a lot of diversity in in holding just like more of the same LST if the validator set increases versus holding different brands of LSTs. The other approach to this, which I think is interesting, is FRAX, where they're a subscale LST, but they're verticalizing everything. They've got the stablecoin, they've got the lending market, they've got, you know, like I think there's an L2 coming. It's just like one piece of the puzzle. Yeah. So th- those are the two avenues. Like you can either you know DVT it up with you know the staking router and go in the direction of Lido or other providers that are doing that, or you can verticalize and try to build this ecosystem where eventually you do have enough fees to pay the validators profitably.
1: I kind of love this idea of targeting you know or centering fees around validator profitability, um, and you know whatever deposits go to maybe the largest validator sets, so you target something like a twenty percent profitability, and maybe that comes out to only 3% commission rate because they already have so many deposits versus you sending, you know, whatever gets sent to say the DVT or solo staker set, maybe they get 8% and Lido only takes 2% because that's, what's required to keep them profitable. Um, and then you can kind of, you know, well, commoditize that side of the, of the marketplace a little bit. Um, but keeping everybody relatively happy. Um, I think that could be an interesting avenue, um, especially with firms like Rated that are that are getting into this and closely partnering with you guys.
2: It's such a difficult problem, though, because you like how do you even civil resistance defend you know your DVt set from the professional node operators if they see that the margins are different? And I think that the the this is why designing a staking router fee markets is such a so for maker, it's actually simpler because it just has to solve for say quote unquote return on equity for the bank it's very clear it's very straightforward what that objective function is it has one outcome with lido it has n and we haven't even figured out what the number n is right you know profitability is one of them but then it's only one of them the descent, the degree of decentralization is another and there's like 20 other ways that you can encode these variables into that signature potentially to make it more robust to civil uh, Let's say.
0: I've got a a question for you, Adrian, um, and how do you see eventually, like if we're having this, this discussion five years from now, and we're looking at the staking router, are there like five or six sort of broad modules, or are we looking at thousands of modules where each module might end up being a very custom set of parameters for let's say a large pool of existing ETH that could act as distribution. So my like mental model eventually for where uh, protocols like Lido are going to have to go. Is they're they're trying to be ETH vacuums, right? They're trying to suck up all the all the ETH out there, and eventually you will max out the amount of just individual people with with ETH that want to deposit. And eventually, Lido will find need to find a way to go after large existing pools of Ethereum, and that could be in like DeFi protocols today that have some sort of rehypothecation module, or I, I don't know where it'll come from in the future. But eventually I would guess is, okay, there'll be this pool of let's say 100,000 ETH or something like that. And they'll say, hey, I I, I would like to use the, you know, I, I want to do this with Lido, but you know, come on, I've got 100,000 ETH, I shouldn't be getting the same terms as someone who's just depositing one ETH into the protocol, right? So you could imagine, and and they might also have like more bespoke set of, of needs as well. Uh, maybe some more technical requirements, like we've used the example of Maker's PSM, uh, you know, Coinbase versus CoinShares uh, proposals that went out earlier this year. But you know, h- how do you think that might ultimately look? And does Lido need to go chase those pools of ETH?
2: There's two. So on the on the validator side, it's it's hard to say. Um, I would be tempted to say I wish it would it was the scenario with like thousands of different types of modules because that would imply that Lido has developed to a point where it can trustlessly and, and permissionlessly onboard any arbitrary number of validator modules. And I think that would be a really great thing. Uh, so if, if it means having a thousand modules and Lido you know, balances out the ETH deposits successfully and guarantees the, the security of Ethereum and its decentralization, then I think that's a really good outcome. In you make another interesting point, which is the, let's say, channel acquisition of, of ETH. Um, I think so it's interesting because there's certainly a stakeholder and, you know, a, a, let's say a wallet with hundred thousand ETH, um, has to shop around very carefully when it comes to allocating their, their stake in order to secure the network, part of that allocation may well be to not stake any of it at all, or only some of it. And, you know, should they have a claim, let's say to sort of preferential access or some kind of revenue share? There is a a sort of revenue share program at the moment, uh, rolled out by the protocol relations team for sort of large stakers. Is it sustainable over the long run? I'm, I'm not super sure. I have a preference just aesthetically for having the channel distribution partners clip a fee for providing access to Lido from their customers. Like if you step back and abstract away from Lido as a consumer product and think of it more as middleware, then integrating with Lido will look something like, you know, you log onto your banking account and they have, they plug into the Lido API smart contracts for their customers, their KYC, whatever. They go through this whole song and dance and they clip a fee for providing access to the service. And I think that's fine. And I think that's probably a more interesting and more sustainable way rather than bringing them into the core of the protocol, let's say. Um, Because the goal, yeah, again, the goal of LIDO is not necessarily to stake stake all the ETH. I once made a joke that, uh, you know, if LIDO staked 100% of all the ether in circulation, Ethereum would stop working because you wouldn't be able to sign any transactions with any gas. Um, So that's not necessarily the goal. The goal is to balance the incentives of like validators and ETH stakers such that Ethereum itself is as decentralized as possible. So I think it would be... Maybe governance has a different view. I don't know. You would have to ask the token holders. But I see these sort of revenue share programs as more of a temporary situation, though they are certainly you know relevant. Child, right. Child and
1: and right now, and I guess the revenue share is being done through the affiliate program. Um, and I noticed there is a proposal with with BitDAO right now, um, right to deposit. Yeah. I think it was forty thousand ETH, um, and that w- and that would put them into exactly, the yeah. category of getting, I believe, thirty percent of the revenue share back. Um, so I think that's really interesting and maybe lighter touch uh as it relates to you know changing core parts of the protocol um and again even if bitdao did have their own module per se you could not direct deposits only to that module with the custom fee structure right now so yeah. it's just worth thinking about um
2: this is a this is a this is more of a let's frame this more as a dao proposal rather than a protocol change right like lighter the protocol continues to function in exactly the same way but the leader of the DAO, the union of token holders, have just decided that in this particular instance, it might be interesting for 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 BitDAO for Mantle to to get access to this affiliate program. I
1: think that makes a lot of sense, um, and I would also love to just kind of explore some some additional revenue and, and growth models uh, that you guys may or may not have been thinking about so far. Um, and I think the goal with any sort of you know additional revenue that you might think about is you know one. Not hurting steeth users, right? Not leveraging too much uh, control with your market share over steeth users to, you know, increase the rake. And two, not hurting decentralization. Um, and I think, I guess, two ideas that come to mind and the Stride team and Cosmos has introduced this, but you could they're introducing a, um, a way to bid for instant with, withdrawals. Um, and so this is really going after, you know, the searcher market uh, who wants to perform ARBs. Um, and then another one, which I believe was brought up on Uncommon uh, Core is this idea of, you know, we have sequencers on the, all these rollups now, um, and they're going to need to select a, you know, maybe a small sequencer set, and lido is in an interesting position because you already have relationships with a very you know geographically distributed set of, of validators um these two jobs of you know being an l1 validator or an l2 sequencer are not so different you could imagine um and so you could potentially be you know a i guess node operator as a service uh provider for some of these these l2s but Other than those two ideas, you know, are are there any other things you've been thinking about, um, on, on the revenue side or just, you know, growth strategies in general?
2: I think the, the, so the one I would frame it more around product strategies, the attitudes that the, like the, the shape of the lighter protocol that has emerged over time has been one of relentless focus on just making a really good product. And I think that that's the best growth strategy of all. It speaks to the fact that, you know, of the liquid staking tokens, most people are choosing to stick with Lido. It's not Lido that's going out and trying to acquire these users. People are simply staking their use. So I think focus on the core protocol and there is so much uh, creative space left to, to design around. Uh, I think the L1 and L2, you know, the sequencer angle is interesting, but as with L1 issues, Lido, the protocol I would hope would over time avoid positioning itself as a kingmaker in any one respect and try to solve for as much neutrality as possible. And I think that that would make it a a more attractive product for each one of these L2s. And I think that that's what may result in its growth through that channel, should that be, you know, a potential avenue of, of, of expansion of the protocol. But Yeah, i think the the tldr is in my personal view as narrow as possible as focused as possible on the core problem of you know making staking accessible which is a huge huge problem and then finding ways of making sure that the incentives are balanced not you know not for like the next five to ten years for the next bull run but for like the next thousand years of people using ethereum as a base layer for stuff i think that's the that's the challenge that and yeah, thinking of a losing sleepover. That's super bullish. I mean, oh. it, just like a uh,
3: qualitative perspective, or at least my perspective is, um, and also, you know, we hold tokens in Lido. So disclosure, probably a little bit late in the episode to, to say that. <laughs> but um, like just like my perspective of uh, the Lido DAO is that there's a lot of people who learned a lot of things from Maker. Hasu, you know, Steakhouse and and those guys. um, Even, you know, Constantine just has been around the block so many times that like he's seen it all. Um, And the first time DAOs didn't have this benefit and and kind of ended up, I think like a broad DAO is like a good thing and also a bad thing. It just reflects like a level of scope creep that people probably wouldn't have preferred if they could do it again. And anytime, uh, you know, things are proposed that are more short term, more likely to distract the DAO, more likely to, you know, decrease decentralization. It's always just kind of like laser focus and product focus. And that's very refreshing to me, at least. Like it is really one of the better run DAOs and does live the principles of, you know, aligning with Ethereum decentralization, making staking easy. And um, it's more product led, I would say, than, than most other DAOs as well. Just because like people are just interacting with Lido in, in numbers that you don't really see in any other DAO. Like there's 168,000 unique depositors, like depositors, not just people who own this or trade it, like people who have interacted with the staking contracts. Like it's pretty wild. There's a very broad constituent set. And I think the ethos of the DAO reflects that.
0: I've got one more set of questions, guys, around just this this idea of an internal fee market to Lido. And this idea idea that I've sort of been thinking about since the episode that we did with Izzy about the potential of a sort of bribe model for the Ldo token but one one question that I have about how this is actually going to play out in practice is my understanding is the way that fees are going to be set for these different modules is through governance. Um, so anytime you have uh, like set that sort of set that sort of ability, you sort of open your there's an incentive right for people to try to to monkey with with governance right to uh, to drive fees in the way that they ultimately want. Um, so you know my two-part question for you is, you can sort of see eventually the desire for big sets of stakers um, or more sophisticated actors and deep pocketed actors that really care about percentage points on the amount that they're paying to the protocol or to validators uh, to adopt this strategy of, let's say, in the same way that Curve Finance has this bribe mechanism internally with CRV, the token, you lock it up, uh, there's a VE model, uh, you can direct and then you kind of have the ability to direct Uh, emissions of Curve, CRV the token, to different liquidity pools, and you create this sort of virtuous flywheel for the pool that you're in. A little bit less so, and you kind of have to squint at it, but you could see a similar incentive with the LDO token of if you buy up a bunch of LDO before you have to stake, you could lower the fee parameters of of your specific module stake for a cheaper amount. Um, So there's kind of this bribe model that you know I, I understand why that might sound not Super positive to people, but what I also do believe eventually is that we need to find value accrual for these tokens. You know, you you can't just say something to the effect of Lido is going to be huge, and therefore there's some reason why this token is going to be valuable. Like ultimately, you know, if we're not going to stream, if it's not going to be a claim on cash flows or something like that, that would violate securities laws. There has to be something. Um, so that would be my my question to you. And and if it's not this, if the governance token doesn't stand in as the the mechanism for this fee market, like how what what are these fee markets actually going to to look like internally?
2: It's true. It speaks to the this problem of adverse selection. I suppose it's from the point of view of a very large depositor who is large enough that they could potentially influence the direction of governance through you know cutting into some of their profits by buying blocks of governance support for certain things. It's I suppose it's a possibility. Because in effect, the fee in the staking router is set by governance. At the moment, it's a variable. But I think the intention is to hard code this and to minimize this. And so I think that the two mitigants, so I see, this a, I see this as a remote possibility for 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 three reasons. The first is that the an attack of that size would have to be very large at the moment and would have a very narrow scope of influence to actually change. It would make a lot, it would create a lot of waves you know, like, Oh, large staker is trying to change the fee from whatever, five to zero or something, or to a hundred. The other, uh, so just the size of the attack that it would be required, I think in this, in this transitional phase, while governance still has control over those parameters, I think is a mitigator somewhat, but then the other is the fact that this is not meant to be in the, in the hands of governance forever. The idea of governance minimization and ossification of the protocol is that you take away these levers and these variables. And that you design a system that balances the incentives of all of the participants in this you can call it marketplace in a way such that they're all the least annoyed the least worst off with respect to each other and then the other one is the importance of introducing this aspect of a dual governance veto over ldo token holder decisions which is the sort of final safeguard so if you see someone doing shenanigans with the ldo token you would hope that all the hundreds of thousands of stakeholders could intervene to block it and to prevent any any uh yeah any shenanigans with the fees or with governance so i think it's an interesting model yeah i think this concept of bribing people for governance is definitely a threat i don't know enough about the vote escrow modeling curve or anything i hope yeah i don't know it seems a little overwrought and a bit complicated i'm sure it works out fine um And then the other aspect yeah so as relates to the staking staking router fee marketplace i would hope that it ends up in a place where it's automated where it balances all of these incentives and solves for variables beyond just sort of profitability uh, on the value accrual Uh, maybe the token doesn't have to accrue any value i'm sorry to say i'm sorry to disappoint but maybe he's just holding governance tokens and that's okay and I think that's for governance to decide the, 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 the direction of in the future, you know, there, they are a constituency that needs to be incentivized to participate in governance for now and, you know, may well need to be in the future and those interests need to be balanced somehow, but I wouldn't necessarily characterize it as value accrual necessarily. Although I'm sure Vance disagrees. Yeah, I disagree.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it uh at some point this is going to be a finished product it's going to be decentralized you know my hope is that all the governance will kind of run itself like i do think that's a part of like the maker end game that is you know a little bit sci-fi but like we should have just an automated system making all these decisions and Hmm. then it's time to return cash flow to token holders right i think it's a a pretty straight line
1: i don't think we need to hopefully we get some clarity and that can happen in the next 10 to 20 years without having to, you know, in, introduce these, you know, reasons to buy the token. Uh, hopefully the token's just, you know, generating a lot of cash flows. Um, and we can I mean,
3: like, you know, think about Google as well. Like, you know, they have not distributed cash for a very, very long time other than stock buybacks, but like, yeah. it's just such a valuable company that's growing so quickly and spitting off so much cash that you want to hold that governance token like share whatever right like i i think adrian adrian's point is more so on that front or maybe i'm putting words in your mouth but like the whole idea of i think like you know deferring returning cash flow is like this thing is growing so quickly and compounding and the internal management and the internal token holder community can make it compound faster than giving it to people and having them you know do whatever with it so i think Mm -hmm. that's the spirit of it versus like you know, fuck these token holders. It's, just, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a different way of thinking about it. It's more akin to kind of like the traditional tech valuation, you know, why you yeah. would hold those shares.
2: Yes, with the with the caveat that it's, it's not a company. It's a protocol. So SMTP doesn't have token holders. And if it did, I don't know if they would expect some kind of dividend. And I think that's a more interesting way of thinking about it. Which is not to say that there will never be some sort of like... You know, LDO token holders are important. They're the lifeblood of the DAO. They run the governance, you know, the, they they are the union of token holders that make things happen. And, you know, they are a constituency whose interests need to be managed to make sure that the protocol is maximally well run for the benefit of Ethereum. And yeah, but I approach it from that perspective rather than from trying to, let's say shoehorn it into a, you know, corporation dividend buyback return on capital approach. Yeah.
3: My my approach is also like a like assume the markets are ten to a hundred times larger than you expect. Like if hmm. Steve really becomes the reserve currency of the internet, yeah. The governance token for that is gonna wanna hold. Um, whether there's dividends or not, that's that's not gonna be the, the thing that really sways your mind. Um, but yeah, like I, I think there is just I think a lot of these DAOs are going to be far larger than people anticipate. And the reason why is that the internal, you know, token holder community is going to be able to allocate and redeploy capital in a market that's growing far faster than people expect. So mm-hmm. like short term, I agree with Adrian. Long term, I look at things like, um, and I know it's a company, but Snapchat, it's just like a egregious mismanagement of cash flow of incentives of, you know, conflicts of interest. Like, I, I really think, you know, the way to draw the clean line between the token holders, the Validators uh, and the holders is just cash flow. Like I, I don't really see any other avenue for that to happen in terms of alignment.
2: There's definitely a big balancing exercise that has to be done with uh, all of the different constituents with respect to the surplus that the that the protocol generates for the, For sure.
0: All right, guys, this has been a really fun one and definitely gave uh, us a lot to think about. And yeah, it's just it's just fun to get a little bit more tactical and and you know talk about how you might you know different growth models or improvements of the product or or how you might eventually expect to accrue some value to these tokens, because the one thing I, w- I would say, Adrian, I, I do sort of conceptualize of a lot of these, uh, a lot of these protocols as primitives similar to an HTTP or something like that. But the problem ultimately comes down to incentivization then, and if the if the protocol is dependent on these on people doing things and and holding the token, then incentivization has to be thought of somewhere in that model, but. Guys, this has been a ton of fun. Thank you both uh, so much for, for coming on the episode.
2: Thanks for having us. i yeah, glad you, hope you uh, enjoyed the single digit IQ takes
0: left curve only baby, left curve only. All right, guys, talk to you soon. All
2: right,
0: Miles, that was a great episode with, with Vance and Adrian, um, both really smart guys.
1: Yeah, no, that was, that was awesome. And it was great to have Adrian's perspectives, you know, t- as we compared maker to, um, to Lido, given their position, you know, with, with, or experience working with with both DAOs, um, and yeah, loved loved the perspectives.
0: Yeah, I got to give a shout out to Steakhouse. They're becoming one of my favorite teams. I wasn't super aware of them uh, even a couple months ago, but Adrian and Sebastian and the whole crew over there do really great work and Maker, Lido, some other protocols as well. Um, let's sort of start with you know, I, I thought it was I thought it was helpful. I, th- you know, the caveat here being when we talk about mental models, like comparing Lido to something like a bank, is all reasoning by analogy is inherently flawed, and there's a limit to how far you really want to go down that road. But the reason I found that that was a helpful section of the podcast was just this idea of sort of uh, balancing assets versus liabilities and managing that risk. Again, I'm reminded of this this old post that Multicoin did a little while ago, which is DAO's manage risk. And ultimately, if you have a DAO that manages and underwrites risk, that's a less forkable, sort of more stable moat than something that could be easily uh, forked or stolen away, like Uniswap liquidity or something like that. Although that's actually proven to be pretty sticky. So, um, I thought that was a useful part of the, part of the program.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think this becomes more relevant with the introduction of the, uh, of the staking router, right. Um, yeah. because now we have not just one module with, you know, a pretty uniform risk profile around, you know, each of the validators in it, you have many modules with very different risk profiles. Um, and so while the goal for them broadly is governance minimization, um, I think this is, you know, the one area where there's actually can need to be more human, you know, um, I would say touch points than there was before Lido v2. But again, this can all these, this governance, you know, interaction, or I guess the objectives of this portion of governance is actually very aligned with Ethereum and decentralization, since that is really the main goal here: is how can we make this set as permissionless and you know diversified as possible, while still protecting the users.
0: Yeah. I also really enjoyed the, the perspective of comparing Maker's end game versus Lido's and this idea of Lido as a narrow DAO and Maker as a broad DAO and how they actually might be sort of converging. And one thing that we didn't draw out in the conversation, but I found myself thinking about is there's a point at which I think almost every DAO starts off as a narrow DAO, but then what ends up happening is you sort of hit this saturation of your initial product market fit right? So in the beginning for Maker, that was borrow against ETH, right? It was the ability to sort of lever up and borrow against your ETH. The reason why there was some complexity added to Maker and it became more of a broad DAO instead of a narrow DAO is because the demand to borrow against your ETH ran out. And Rune and some of the early folks at Maker had to make this really difficult decision of, do I continue along this path of growth? And do I allow onboard real world assets and add a little bit of complexity to my DAO and broaden it out a little bit, or do I sort of stick to my knitting? And something that actually occurred to me during that conversation was perhaps we're just each DAO is just at a very different phase of their development, where Lido hasn't maxed out its initial product market fit. And so it still makes sense to continue on this narrow path where at some point, right, they will, they will saturate the market for staked ETH. Right. And then they might have to make some decisions about am I okay with just my current level of of sure. uh, you know my current size or do I need to look for more complex areas to grow
1: yeah I think that's fair or maybe they've maxed out their you know level of pro- product market fit with while having one you know curated uh, validators right. and mm-hmm. so the insight here is to unlock more of the market we actually need to you know diversify this set we need it to be more permissionless. That will involve, you know, making this DAO a little bit less narrow, right? Because there's more jobs to be done. There's more to monitor um, and more decisions to make. But again, that is really all in the the benefits of hopefully Ethereum and the DAO longer term. Um, and as part of, I think, you know, this is something I was talking about with, with Aiden from Stride, but reframing the narrative um, around LSTs and, and governance risk uh, to something that is you know potentially an existential risk to ethereum that's really where we were in the like self limiting debates to hey actually this can be a, a force of decentralization because it is so aligned with ethereum's values and frankly you know the lido if the lido dao can prove that they that through governance ethereum can have a more decentralized set than if it was totally up to the users you know, to pick and choose how they delegate their stake, Um, you know, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we should not be so concerned about Lido governance. Maybe we should be cheerleading it, right? Um, That would be a very powerful, you know, shift in narrative. And and I think that that's really what LSD protocols should be trying to do at this point.
0: Yeah, I agree with that, Miles. And maybe this is the part where we can segue into some of the discussion about potential business models. And one uh because everything is as a service this, these days i think what i would sort of have kind of heard what you're describing called is node operator distribution as a service so nod as. and what that would you know the the basic desire behind that would be let's say let's actually say you're something like uh let's say restaking ends up getting implemented your optimism and it's like hey we've got we've got one sequencer today ultimately we want a more distributed set of sequencers And then you sort of go through the same questions that you might in terms of how do you create a distributed set of validators? Well, I don't want them all in the same jurisdiction. I don't want them to all be the same person. And there needs to be some amount of checkup on on my sequencers in the same way that a staking pool would have to check up on their node operators. Well, I could either go about doing that myself, which is a really tricky program, or I could go to a third party like Lido and say, hey, you actually have this distributed set of validators. You've done the hard work of... Um, distributing these across different geographies, et cetera. Yeah. And I would like some of these guys to opt in and become a sequencer. So that could be quite a, uh, an interesting opportunity for a protocol like Lido.
1: Yeah. You could argue that Lido is basically a form of like proof of authority for a for distributing Ethereum stake right now. Um, and yeah, exactly. they've, you know, really have developed like a robust, you know, proof of authority system. Um, and then you can, re- you know, replicate that. You know all those existing relationships all of you know i guess all the distributed infrastructure to other sort of proof of authority systems um one of which could be you know sequencer sets for for uh roll-ups and yeah that's just an interesting kind of downstream um effect of of really what they've established already um and another interesting business model but again that kind of makes the DAO less narrow, right? So all of these decisions of, you know, expanding horizontally or vertically, or, you know, have have trade-offs that I think might be tough to get past, or at least in the very near future.
0: Yeah. I think a big part of our discussion as well ended up sort of hinging on this question of will liquid staking protocols allow some sort of service or allow the ability of delegators to select validators on the other side of the marketplace with a specific set of criteria so we stayed with this sort of example of uh with this sort of example of an institutional uh, depositor that wants to be connected with a kyc set of validators and yeah. the big the big issue with this is one I think Adrian Adrian did a good job of pointing out that it doesn't really fundamentally make sense Steve is you know, fungible today, and it's all Steeth are like other Steeth, and this doesn't really make sense actually, even at a high level. And this is where the analogy of Lido being a bank or a money market fund or something like that breaks down because Ethereum is fundamentally something new yeah. and these analogies don't fit because staking isn't really a thing in the real world. Yeah. But the big protocol more mechanically is that the ability to do this would break fungibility with Steath and Steeth at the same time that you open up a market and you put competitors like alluvial under an enormous amount of strain almost overnight by offering the ability to do this you do break a core part of the value proposition of your your product offering today and that should not be taken lightly i don't think
1: no no i think it would it's like a, it's a technical challenge right now and if they're able to you know innovate something that breaks that trade off then this could be a more interesting conversation um, i think the challenge is really around you know if there is a slashing event how do you you know make sure that only some of steth gets slashed right that is associated with the validator who who you know was responsible for the event um versus today if one of the lido validators gets slashed then that loss is socialized across all of steth holders right um but then it's like you know, even beyond the technical challenge, it's more of a question of should we do this? Should we leave that you know, this decision completely to the users? Um, and that would shift you know, Lido from more of a proof of authority sort of model to a delegated proof of stake model, um, or something that looks much closer to that. And we know that those end up with typically top-heavy sets. Um, and so, yeah, that will be another sort of. Uh, question, I think, maybe as Lido hits, the next sort of ceiling of of market share that they can grow. Um, Say they get all of the market share of, you know, capital that doesn't care about, you know, I would say like, or have institutional level requirements. Um, Then they'll look at this a little bit more seriously. But I think that it'll take a while to get
0: there. And just to clarify for the audience, why in a delegated proof of stake system, it tends to be very top heavy is imagine yourself from the perspective of a delegator, right? And there's some sort of user interface and you're deciding, you know, who to stake your, uh, you know, who to delegate your stake to. And you can see maybe five large validators with an enormous amount of stake and this great track record in history, et cetera, et cetera. And then you see a longer list of validators. Again, you don't know who any of these these people are. It's not like you can look up a Yelp review on on your validators, right? It's just uh, mm-hmm. you, you just see that they don't have very much stake, and you know you take the heuristic that if they're managing a lot of stake, they must be trustworthy and reputable,
1: right? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. There's no Yelp for validators today, but there are a lot of great you know tools getting developed, um, like Rated, or you know also what we see in Cosmos um, where governance and you know involvement is uh a big part of the value prop for validators and so right I see their track record and how they think but yeah no i don't i don't think it would be i don't think it's a given that that would be a healthy thing for right. the theory, the protocol
0: so eventually lido and other liquid staking protocols like it are going to have to make this decision because maybe the staking router miles to your point earlier unlocks the next phase of growth but even after that right there will be a point where all of the Lido is staked or all of the Ethereum is staked, right? That is, that could possibly be staked. Someone made the point, I think it might've been Adrian on this podcast that you can't actually stake hundred percent of ETH because you got to pay for gas, right? So there are these, there are limits somewhere in terms of how much can be staked. And then Lido is going to have to grow some in some other way. And one, one of the other ways is, you know, you could have these additional sort of more service fee like models, like liquid staking as a service, where you're more of a concierge type thing. Or you could think about it from the perspective of, again, STEETh is a claim on a pool of assets, right? So really what you want to do is grow the pile of assets in that pool. And one way that you could do it is you will eventually max out your ETH. So you could again, do things like restaking and you get other assets in that pool, which again, it causes all sorts of problems and complications, but it will be a challenge down the line. And, and one you know, the, the last part of this discussion, and this is where I think you and I are maybe a little bit less aligned, so feel free to push back on me here, is uh, how value accrual is going to work. And I agree with you to maybe present the steel man of, of my argument here, that there, this sort of broadens out into a discussion of tokenomics writ large, right? Which is, there are sort of, these aren't mutually exclusive opinions, but there are kind of two different ways that tokenomics or value accrual can work in a crypto protocol. One is that it's more traditional, right? It's that this protocol does a function. You collect a, a whole bunch of cash flow, and then eventually the token holders will get distributed that cash flow after a period of time. It's the equity model of value accrual, right? Then there's this other more more crypto native one, which is the token itself actually is part of the product. So you create in in creating this this protocol with this this set of uh, this set of services, you actually bake demand for the token into that design. So a really good example of that, frankly, where that works and is very elegant is Ethereum, right? That's a that's a crypto economic system where there's actually, uh, it makes sense. There's a demand and then a burn mechanism for accruing value. Another example of that would be Curve. We covered that in the podcast about the vote escrow model where you're locking a bunch of that up and you can direct emissions of the protocol. And I'm generally less of a fan of those token designs, but the caveat that I'll that I'll you know say here is that there's some amount of path dependency where the problem with the equity model is that inherently that that looks very securities like right and there could be a period of time let's just use this hyperbolic example. let's say we don't get clarity on the security you know uh, securities law side of things for like 20 years, right? That's, that's too long of a time for us to just say, yeah, that'll, it'll, it'll come down the pike at some period of time. So what people will inevitably do is find, I think in that situation, the longer until we get clarity on the securities law side of things, the more we are going to drift into this model of baking the token into the product in some way, shape or form. And that's where I could, I could see a world where you start to see these like a bribe model for Lido or something like that. But I mean, I mean you tell me, like, what, what, are you, what are your sort of thoughts here?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely more of that more traditional mental model for these things in general. Um, you know, I think Lido has a great product that people want um, and are willing to pay for today. Um, and it's actually closer, uh, profitable already uh, now that incentives have been wound down so much. Um, and so I think about, you know, the future growth and value accrual to Lido token, I think a little bit more traditionally, where you shouldn't be focused on, I guess, reverse engineering, you know, uh, some form, some way to generate demand for the token into the product itself. Um, I think these typically, you know, degrade the products um, and or at least make them less sustainable than than more traditional um products with, that don't require a token. Um, I think even Ethereum, people are starting to like push back a little bit and it's come and gone at various points that, you know, Ethereum is too value extractive from the apps on top. Um, but it's also a platform versus, you know, a, an app, I would say. So it's a little bit different. Um, yeah. And then like longer term, okay, where how does Lido grow um, and and really, you know, generate demand for LDO, the token? Um I think this is an interesting balance for them to walk as well, because let's just, even if we ignore like, you know, tokenomics and just think about, you know, how to, I guess, maybe maximize profit, um, they could do something like have the validators, you know, bid down what they would be willing to take, you know, for a share in order to get more of an allocation of stake. Um, And this is something that you see with other sort of marketplaces like, Like in the piece that I wrote a while ago, I referenced Priceline, right? That Their supply side bid up, right? Can bid for better placement on search results. um, And that increases the rake of the business without actually impacting the user at all. So Lido doesn't need to increase its fee to the user. You know, in a similar sense, Lido wouldn't have to increase, you know, the fee to the user. It could increase, you know, some sort of supply side dynamic. But then again that's not actually healthy maybe to maximize long-term market share. If right. that leads to a top-heavy set, people are going to get mad again. Um, it's like Google AdWords actually. A little yeah. Bit. Like, something more like that, you know, uh, where you are not impacting the user. Um, but if you can, you know, I guess increase profitability without, you know, really harming, I guess, the, the objective of decentralization for the underlying protocol, that's more what I would be interested in. Um, than like V E L D O or something like that, you know. Uh, I hear you. That though um, I hear so you on that. That's my rant. <laughs> yeah, partner.
0: I I really do empathize, but I I also, you know, the best thing doesn't always end up getting done, does it? <laughs> the path dependency is very real, and patient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. All right, Miles. This was a fun one. Um, We. Should be hearing uh, next episode actually. So uh, this thus far this season, you know, we've been focusing on liquid staking, but also on this sort of idea of, um, you know, flat versus broad DAOs and managing your surface area, and you know, not going down the road of vertical integration. And I think our our next set of uh, our next guest will sort of give us the counterpoint there i don't want to give away too much information but next episode is going to be sort of the the antithesis of what we've been describing and sort of the steel man for the steelman counterfactual as it were so yeah yeah. yeah all right buddy it'll be fun